Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Jerry Butts, a man who needs little in the way of introduction in Canadian politics. He previously served as Principal Secretary to Prime Minister Trudeau, and before that, Jerry served in the same role for Premier Dalton McGuinty. He's currently Vice Chair of Eurasia Group, having also previously served as the head of World Wildlife Fund Canada. Now, he's made the news recently for some of his comments around foreign election interference, including his call for a nonpartisan inquiry. And while I share Jerry's views on that front, and we do discuss the issue, the bulk of our conversation and really where my interest is in seeking out his advice is his experience and success with campaigns that delivered serious political renewal at both provincial and federal levels. Jerry, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's great to see you, man. Last time I saw you, I think we bumped into each other at the uh, Billy Bishop Airport. I think that's probably right, actually. Although I have now seen you, I, I regularly follow you on Twitter, but I've seen you in, I think, on the front page of the Globe and Mail recently. And uh, <laughs> when I when I saw the conversation around election interference renew itself and and the leaks from CSIS, my mind initially went to five years ago where our ethics and privacy committee, we were having this conversation, but it wasn't just a conversation we were having as a Canadian parliament. I was working with Charlie Angus, working with Bob Zimmer, working with Peter Kent in a very nonpartisan way. We were working with our UK colleagues. We were working with colleagues all around the world. And what I valued most about some of your comments, I mean, obviously the press is more focused on, oh, former aid calls for an inquiry and, and conflict. And But the, the more interesting question is, how do democracies work together in a multilateral way? I don't think there's an existing multilateral institution that is sufficient for this purpose yet. How do we how do we get together as democracies to combat what is a real threat, not a threat specific to Canada, not a threat specific to the United States, and not a threat that's coming from one foreign adversary? How, how do we make sure that we are working together in a more robust way? Yeah, well, it, as you know, that's kind of the bread and butter, the work we do at the Eurasia Group, where I am now. And looking at how the changing geopolitics is affecting risk for private sector actors principally, but also uh, take a more macro view of it. And what does this mean for the general business environment in all countries? And it's what, what I, um, what I said in calling for a nonpartisan uh, investigation into foreign interference in Canadian politics was meant to convey the sense that the threats are just much more severe than they than they were f even five or six years ago. That, let's face it, we are in, for all intents and purposes, a live kinetic conflict, or at least we're furnishing a live kinetic conflict with Russia. Uh, Russia has historically, most famously, but not exclusively, acted to destabilize the democracy in, to the south of us in the United States. And in the United Kingdom, lots of evidence there. They're presently active in other NATO ally countries as well. I think this is just a really important time to take a step back and look at how we can equip our public institutions to deal with this. Because, and I said this yesterday, so I apologize for saying it again, Nate. The, the thing that worries me most, and, and every private citizen in the country should be worried about this, as this becomes a partisan political issue, the political system of the country becomes easy prey for malign foreign actors. They are not interested in who is the government of the day. They are interested in eroding trust in public institutions 
so that whoever is government of the day can do very little to counter their interests in the broader world. So it's alarming to me to see this get mooted as if it were, and it's almost like Groundhog Day, if you've paid attention to what's going on in other countries over the past 10 years, to see this become an issue about partisan politics, because that's exactly what people who mean us harm would like to see happen. Right. The, the, the motivation is to cause chaos because Absolutely. chaos debilitates decision making and, and renders a democracy like Canada or through Brexit, a democracy like the UK or through the interference in the United States or our ally to the south renders impotent, uh, uh, renders our, our allies impotent in terms of responding to, to these kinds of threats and responding to geopolitical events. We saw that I, when I mentioned five years ago, we were very much focused on going down this rabbit hole of Cambridge Analytica, and that was more focused on on Brexit. But it, it, it happens everywhere. And, and I think there is a real need for that international collaboration and cooperation. I also worried, obviously, I mean, I share your view that there should be this nonpartisan robust inquiry in part because when I look at the drip, drip, drip through the media from this leak or that leak out of CSIS, and, and obviously, look, there are concerns about some of the allegations as far as it goes. I worry about deteriorating trust that a citizen might have in, in, in our institutions and democracy. I also worry about colleagues getting dragged through the mud without substantive evidence around complicity that I think what's happened to my colleague Han, like, I don't know the details of it all. None of us know the details of it all. He knows the details of, of what his participation was or his knowledge was. And he's actively said, I had no knowledge of this. And I just think, you know, an independent inquiry or, or some kind of nonpartisan look at this would also ensure that, that people's reputations are preserved where, where, where they deserve to be preserved. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I must say I, there's a certain amount of it's a tough business, right? And you know it well, uh, Nate, that if you're, <laughs> if you're getting into it, you shouldn't get it into it without the reasonable expectation that you'll be treated unfairly. Um, because that's just the way it is. And yeah. uh, you you don't get into the business to be loved. You get into it to accomplish things. And then you move on when you think you've accomplished them. That's kind of my advice. Uh, but the institutional point you're making is a really important one. Because in my view, nobody's coming out of this with trust elevated. This is not good for journalism. This is not good for the federal government. This is certainly not good for the security services of the country, which if there ever were a real crisis, we would have to depend on, right? So if I'm a foreign actor and I'm looking at this situation, it's like uh, their greatest gift all rolled up into one because you're watching as trust is being eroded daily in all the institutions that we depend on for social cohesion. So if you're a chaos monkey out there, and there are plenty of them in the world these days, you got to be really happy about the way this is unfolding. Right. And, and from an agency perspective, it seems on the one hand, there's an understanding acknowledgement, I think, by everyone that these kinds of attempts are recurring and, and there's nothing new under the sun here. Foreign We're adversaries, right? Right. Exactly. Foreign country. adversaries attempt to interfere with our elections. The agencies have to respond and make sure that they prevent success in that regard. But but really where there's domestic complicity, I mean, we saw in the United States prosecutions, real investigations and prosecutions. So if there's evidence of domestic complicity, then the agency shouldn't be drip, drip, dripping through the media. They should be investigating and prosecuting. Exactly, exactly right. Uh, I, I don't want to dwell there. There's a lot to yeah, talk yeah. about. Uh, 
I I wanted to ask you a little bit about this narrative Canada is broken and, and to yeah. stay at the federal level. I, I want to ask you about provincial politics too, given my interest. But at the federal level, I remember distinctly, it was almost a year ago, it was in June. And if you remember, passport processing was frustratingly slow and, and, and felt broken. The airports felt broken. Immigration processing felt broken. I remember getting up in caucus and saying, everything feels broken. And... <laughs> And then I woke up to Pierre Poliev saying the same thing many months later. Yeah. But it's interesting because passport processing has resumed normalcy. Our airports have resumed normalcy. Everything doesn't feel broken at the federal level. If anything, what's really curious to me right now, when I think about what is broken and what feels broken, people are dying in the opioid crisis. And that's a provincial responsibility more than anything, treating it as a healthcare issue. You have... Uh, uh, a lack of nurses and a lack of doctors in our healthcare system. That's a provincial issue primarily. And almost when I see Pierre now out there saying everything feels broken, I think he's talking about the provinces. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's uh, what he's trying to capture is an umbrella narrative, right? And the, in my view, it's a difficult one for the government to get out from under because when you've been in power for going on eight years, this is the eighth year of the government, I believe, um, you don't want to be put in a position where you're saying, no, everything's fine. And like the land is strong, right? And, and right. people are saying you're out of touch. As you know, I've always been a better is always possible kind of guy. So you can acknowledge that things need improvement and propose clear ways to improve them. And that's the best way to respond to that kind of thing. I think that it's understandable that people are susceptible to claims that things are really bad because let's face it, it's been a really crappy few years. And I think the psychological trauma that people have been through um, has uh, been underestimated by most actors in politics. I think it's been exploited by some, but it's been underestimated by most. And people are feeling really, really beaten up because they've been beaten up. And, uh, you know, my view has always been that you try and understand where people are as closely as you can and you speak to them where they live not try to convince them to move, right? And uh, if you try and do the latter, then you reinforce all of the all of the tendencies that people rightly feel about governments that have been around for a long time. And I'm not just talking about the Trudeau government. I certainly uh, felt this toward the end of my time at the McGinty in the McGinty government as well. That you know, you get there, you get comfortable, you start to think. Um, uh, I think Paul Wells wrote this at one point that the thought occurs to every person who sat in the prime minister's office for a long time that nobody else could. And right. that is always wrong. <laughs> right. So, so it's, uh, uh, I think it's just, it's the, the longer you're there, the more people see you as the job, the less the, they see you as a person. And that's true if you're the member from the beaches, or it's true if you're the, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, it doesn't really matter that you become imbued with all of the institutional characteristics that you've been wearing for so long. Right. right. And the imperfections that come with that. I, I do think, though, a useful response back is to say, in a very honest way, things aren't broken. And, and look at the number of people who yeah. want to come to Canada and, and for the quality of life. And it's ridiculous to assert that everything's broken. But we can acknowledge the imperfections and, and, and the imperfect progress that we've made, 
But in doing so, let's not forget about the progress we've made. And, and we have to re-articulate at all times the progress we've made. I, I think a very good example is clean water on reserves. It is entirely unacceptable that there are any instances of long-term boil water advisories, short-term advisories on reserves in this country. We promise to lift them all in five years, and that is a broken promise. We can acknowledge that, and we can be very honest and forthright in that, while also saying over 70% of long-term advisories have been lifted, well over 100 short-term advisories have been lifted to prevent them from becoming long-term advisories, and there's money in there's money allocated already. There are water projects underway in every community in need, and we aren't there yet, but we're going to get there. And, and the job today is to protect the progress and to build on the progress. Yeah, look, I've always been a lot stunned, lots more to do kind of guy. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And if you stop thinking that there are things that need to be improved, then you probably shouldn't be there anymore. I, I want to ask uh, to stay on the conservative narrative because despite the challenges that the conservative party has at times that we we appear to be neck and neck and, and we have our own challenges after as you acknowledge you know the barnacles of government sort of yeah. grow over time and that's that's the natural order of things but on the one hand i want to start with a challenge that the conservatives face and we saw it crop up it, it seems to always crop up i mean sheer veered too quickly into the arms of yellow vesters o'toole caused his party some whiplash by going from take back Canada to I'm a progressive conservative. I, I think he happens to be a progressive conservative, but he, he played something else in the leadership. And now you've got Poiliev, who he gleefully reaped the support from the convoy crowd. And now he's trying to walk a line. And you've got Leslin Lewis and Dean Allison, who called Christine Anderson a, a a good lady, I think. Yeah. And and you've got uh, Les and Lewis, who is sort of trying to restart the blackface conversation. And you've got Colin Carey. There are three colleagues who met with this fascist, Christine Anderson, and Pauliev distances himself from it in a quiet way, but not a very public facing way. He's got a very fine line to walk here because he's got to come back to the middle enough, but he's got to maintain enough support from that further to the right crowd. Yeah, I question whether he does have to come to the middle. I think their 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 strategy is really transparent. It's um, we got seven million votes in 2015. Uh, we got about five, six, a little over six in 2019, and then the party got. I won't say we because I wasn't involved in the 21 campaign, as you know. Uh, got um, something like 5.7 or 5.6 in 2021. That's not a good. Tr- trajectory right yeah when, yeah when you look at the conservative side of the ledger they got 5.6 5.7 5.6 so their strategy is to drive the liberal vote down by another 500,000 votes and that turns their 32 or 33 into 35 or 36 and they form a government maybe even a majority government depending on how it plays out so how do they do that? They do that by toxifying the prime minister's brand, and they do it by toxifying the Liberal Party brand. Uh, and that's a pretty simple strategy, right? And I think you'll see them pursue it with vigor. They won't veer from it. They will talk a lot in the press about how they're trying to turn the party into a Big Ten party. And, you know, maybe Pierre Poiliev wears his version of the blue sweater that Stephen Harper wore in come election time. But that's not what they're doing. And the reason they find it so difficult to um, vocally 
separate themselves from the people who support the people you just described, including some of his own MPs, is because that's where they raise their money, right? Like the 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 fundraising model that was bequeathed to us by a combination of reforms in the Gretchen and Harper years is one where, you know, if you can raise 35 bucks from 250,000 people, then you can run a pretty modern political party. The problem with the way the conservatives have done it is that they've raised that money almost exclusively from people who are relatively far afield from mainstream public opinion in Canada. So it constrains their policy maneuverability. And as a consequence, they're always left with a strategy that is how do we um, how do we form a government with a relatively certain number of votes? We overwhelmed that strategy in, in 2015 by bringing a large number of new voters into the ballot boxes of the country, ballot booths of the country, and especially with younger people. Um, so, you know, unless there's a strategy to re-engage the people who we lost uh, in the subsequent two elections, then it's going to be a uh, a relatively uninspiring hand-to-hand -hand combat with a bunch of people who, you know, are tough to fight hand-to-hand -hand with. Well, and let's stay with young people for a moment, because there are two issues that come up a lot when I speak to younger people. I was just visiting a civics grade 10 class, and, and we talked about both of these issues. And one will continue to be, I think, an Achilles heel of the Conservative Party, which is climate action. There are conservatives yeah. in my riding who don't like all the spending, don't like the ethics controversies over time, and 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 the attack on the liberal brand that the conservatives wage works for those conservatives, but they also care about their kids. They care about doing the right thing. They care about the science, and they will vote for me, and they will hold their nose in some cases. I don't think they like me enough, but they will hold their nose in some cases yeah. because they go, look, you're the only serious, credible party on climate action. You personally take this seriously. You got my vote. So there's on the one side, there's an Achilles heel. On the other side, when you look at young people, and there's growing numbers of conservative supporters in the younger cohort, and I think it's squarely because of housing affordability. It is... Yeah. Uh, people don't see themselves owning a home and affording a home that they saw their parents being able to afford. I I live in a home that is not a fancy home. It's a three-bedroom semi-detached that two parents could once upon a time afford. I, I live yeah. a 10-minute walk from the house I grew up in. Two parent, two teachers, I should, two teachers are not affording this house. And it's hard. The federal it's liberal really government can, cannot solve this problem. No government can solve this problem in the short term. So it's a really hard, but yeah. that is, I think, very obviously driving younger people into the conservatives' arms. Yeah, I think it's certainly um, making them kick the tires of the opposition. Right? Yeah, fair, fair. And the that's natural. If the situation that you just described obtains, and I think it does in most urban and suburban areas of the country, then it's going to be natural for people to look elsewhere for solutions if they feel like the government's been there a long time and hasn't provided any. Yeah, it's 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 challenging because it's also a space where. But their strategy is not to solve those problems, right? Their no, no, no. It's the their strategy is yeah. to take people who are worried about those problems and make them angry. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, and and, and they need not pr provide any solutions. I mean, 
Polyev's every housing expert that I've spoken to says, yeah, they're identifying a challenge around housing supply, but they've got no solutions. And and their job, as you say, isn't to provide solutions. It's kind of a it's a con job, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah, conservative con job. Yeah, the. the other challenges in, in housing, and, and we might as well move to the provincial level, because housing, when you want to solve that problem, you're really solving it at the provincial level in many cases. I mean, there, we talk a big game at the federal level sometimes about what we can do, but but really so much of it, when you want to, to address red tape, if we want to talk about red tape, it really is a, a provincial and municipal conversation. It, it is, and maybe this is a great segue into the provincial part of this, because I know that's what you want to talk about, and so do yeah. I. Um, I don't really like to do the backseat driving federal politics thing as you go. I try <laughs> to do a minimum on that. One of the things I hated most when I was in my old job was seeing people who used to do my old job come on TV and tell me how to do it. So I promised my many friends who are still there that I would never do that and I don't want to. Um, but, you know, the point you're making about the, uh, the federalism point that you're making, um, federalism Almost everything we love about Canada requires federalism to work, whether it's healthcare, whether it's a relatively um, similar level of public education across the country. Like all of these things require goodwill and common purpose at different orders of government. Housing is a great example. I live in a, a neighborhood in the west end of Ottawa. I'm looking at it blizzard, uh, if you don't believe me, outside right now, where you know, it was dominated by post-war bungalows when uh, Jody and I moved in here six years ago, when, whenever it was in the summer of 2016, it's almost seven years ago now. And since we've been here, just, and we live in one of these houses, I'm not saying um, we're not part of the problem. Since we've been here, all of those houses have been torn down and replaced with houses that none of the people who lived in the old houses could afford to buy, right? Exactly. But those houses were built by the federal government after the war. That land was zoned by the municipality. Uh, The policy was facilitated by the provincial government. So in my view, if there's going to be a durable solution on housing, it's got to involve everybody. And it's too easy. I mean, it's, it's really too easy for every level of government in the country to say, this is not my problem, it's their problem. No matter what the problem is. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I, the challenge on housing in particular, and I always worry about this federally, is that when we over-promise and under-deliver, and on housing, I don't think we can afford to do so. And so when we don't have all of the levers, I just think there's some honesty required to say, we'll yeah, do our best. I agree. I agree. This is what's within our power, and this is what we're going to be able to do. We can't do everything unless we do get that cooperation and that buy-in, yeah. and, and we're and we're and we're open to working with with other levels of government. Uh, so so to stay at the provincial level, because this is why I ultimately invited you on. I you you have a very interesting perspective because you were not only part of uh, provincial government and, and and provincial elections, and and you saw. The renewal from a loss in 1999 to a win in 2003, but but even federally, I think the when I think of the blueprint, and I obviously was a bit player in this. I was here in Beaches East York hustling a nomination, but I got involved in the in the renewal Absolutely. of the party, and I saw that energy and excitement and really grassroots engagement and a promise to do politics differently and a, and a generational renewal in many ways. And yeah. I see that blueprint as essential for what we need to do at the provincial level right now as Ontario Liberals. 
Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, sometimes you need to hit rock bottom in order to build. And we were, <laughs> we were certainly there in the federal liberal party. I don't think we were quite there in the Ontario liberal party when I came in after the 1999 election, which was, you know, it was a pretty successful election uh, for a party that seldom formed a government. It was just disappointing because they had hopes to do so. The, there, there. It's, I've given this some thought since you asked me to do this, and there, you know, there's no. Um, there are a couple of really important things you need to do. One is just like blow the doors open of the party, right? And I think the most important thing that we did, for all of its faults and all of the criticisms at the time, uh, was to make the party open to everybody for free, right? And create a sense not just that. We wanted you to be there so that we could, you know, shepherd you around nomination battles or have you there to volunteer on election day. But because we actually really wanted to hear what was going on in your community and we wanted to do something about it. And we wanted to turn the Liberal Party, both provincially and then federally, into a platform for your aspirations. Right. And you can't you can't bullshit people on that. Right. Like one of my one of my favorite stories about this was is the how um, the idea for Family Day came from a breakfast roundtable that uh, Leona Dombrowski and I had with 25 citizens in, I think it was Kaladar. It might have been Napanee, but I think it was Kaladar. You never know where good ideas are going to come from, but you're never going to find them if you're close-minded about them, right? Yeah. So I think the, the, the toughest true criticism of Canadian liberals is that we can be a bit of an elitist clique, right? And if we're honest with ourselves about the history of our own party, that's been when we become, when that stereotype of the party has become truest and therefore difficult, most difficult to defend ourselves against, that's when we've been least successful as a political movement. But when we're at our best, I think we're, we're an open door. We're a platform for people to realize their own aspirations for their community and their country. And that's doubly true in Ontario, where we are historically the minority party. And when I say the blueprint has been written in many ways, it's yeah. it's not to say you take it off the shelf com completely intact and apply it, but, it, but in many ways, I even think you, you talk about serving sort of elitist and closed door and, and you, you need to open it up. I mean, I was 29. I grew up in an NDP household. I, I didn't have sort of a, a liberal history to my family in, in any particular way. I joined my riding association in 2012. Trudeau and co and yourself included focused on calling open nominations, embracing that sort of grassroots competitiveness at the ground level. And it's becoming it's become a bit rote over time, as many of these lines do. Better is always possible. We want to you to be a voice in in Ottawa yeah. on behalf of your communities, and not a voice for Ottawa in, in your communities. I, I mean, I, I believed all of that. I got I, I left law because of that in many ways. And I, well, and I think I think you actually uh, more than most you live that. Yeah, I try to. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I remember. Uh, I think it was the animal. Uh, animal rights bill. Yeah, you remember yeah. that conversation we had <laughs> yeah. outside a caucus, and you thought that everybody was mad at you, and I was like, "Knock yourself out, man! This is, <laughs> this is what we uh, 
<laughs> what we came here to do, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it, and I have seen over time. I mean, the disagreement at times, whether it's electoral reform or, or you know, name your name your issue, where there's been the occasional disagreement, that's received the headlines. But it's actually been the shaping of the agenda because in in 2016, when you, when we had that conversation, you know, knock yourself out. This is what you came to do. So go go to it, kid. This past election, we had animal welfare issues on our platform for the first time. There you, you know? go. So, like over there time, you it, it, yep. persistence pays off in, in that regard, and uh, and coalition building obviously pays off in, in caucus and outside of caucus. And you know, I'm better at it now than I was then. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, that's a good segue into my second uh, uh, principle or piece of advice on that, and that's just work ethic. Right? There is absolutely no substitute for it. And one of the things that nobody ever underestimated that Dalton McGinty with this, everybody knew how hard he worked. But I think one of the things that his opponents underestimated about uh, Justin was just how how absolutely the guy would work like a Trojan for hours on end, uh, days on end on things that were patently unglamorous, right? So there's just no, if, if you don't have an almost unbounded appetite for really difficult work, it's not going to, it's not going to go well for you. Right. Because the people I've seen um, not be successful in politics nine times out of 10, it's because, you know, I remember way back in my uh, undergraduate days when I was thinking about going to law school and I was talking to my dad about it, who was then a long retired coal miner. And I asked him, you know, I'm thinking about this, dad, what do you think? And he said, well, do you want to be a lawyer? And I said, no, not really. He said, well, why would you go to law school? <laughs> I, guess, I kind of feel the same way about politics. It's like, are you worried about what people think of you? Do you uh, have an un, uh, unquenchable appetite for work that nobody's going to recognize? Uh, if you don't have those two things, then you probably shouldn't be in politics. You know, it's funny you say that. I you do need that relentless quality in terms of your work ethic, but you also need to believe that you can convince every, there's a persuasion element that you truly have to believe you can bring yeah. people over to your side. When I mentioned the class that I just went into, I have this uh, song and dance that I do when I go into classes where I ask people if they care about politics when I first go in and nobody puts up their hand. <laughs> and my job is to make sure every damn one of them puts up their hand by the time I'm done with that hour. And, and I'm not, it's not always, I don't have a perfect record. I got a pretty good record though. And, and that's the job. You got to get people excited oh, to yeah, see politics sure. the way yeah. I see it. It's a, it's absolutely, that is the name of the game is persuading people. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think that too often politics becomes a contest for who can be, um, can, can create, more negative uh, feelings about their opponents than they can about them, right? And that 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 is point number three, right? Like you got to be in it because there are things you want to do, not because you want the job. And you've got to be able to persuade people that those things are in their collective self-interest to do them. Like I've I've always believed that um, high road politics, positive politics, whatever you want to call it, is um, kind of poo-pooed by the professional punditocracy because they can be really cynical about politics and for a lot of good reasons, but people don't feel that way. And 
the evidence that you just presented that you can convert people in a classroom, that's that could be a town hall or a church basement or you know, a Facebook meetup or whatever the hell people are doing online these days in politics. Um, if you don't speak to the better angels, people's nature, then you're not going to be able to make, you're not going to be able to create anything durable. Right. And it's, it's one of the reasons actually there was a positive reason for getting into politics back 10 years ago and the liberal party was in third place, but there was a, a, a huge, I think, inspirational message around doing politics differently and seeing politics through a positive light and embracing grassroots politics, all things that very much spoke to me. But there was also that negative motivations, Stephen Harper, and, and, and you can talk about specific policies, but it was actually an approach to politics that bothered me the most. And it was, do you want to win elections to serve ideas or do you come up with ideas to serve elections? And right. there are two different ways of thinking about it. And Harper very clearly was plucking ideas out of different places to serve election cycles. And that's the exact opposite of what we need in our politics. And 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 you have to be willing to lose an election on oh, the yeah, things absolutely. that you care about. Yeah. And, and when you talk about sort of the, uh, it can't just be about your opponent, you, I didn't know this about you, but I was, I was doing my research, Jerry. And uh, so uh, you, you wrote, I, I don't know if this is maybe true, maybe not, but I, I read that you wrote a three-page letter in the wake of the 1999 election to Dalton McGinty. And you said, and I'll paraphrase, that McGinty lost because he wasn't known for anything other than being the anti-Harris guy. Yeah. And I see echoes of that. The conservatives have not gotten the traction that they could, I think, have gotten otherwise because they've been so insistent that Trudeau is enemy number one. The Canadian oh, yeah. public has not felt oh, yeah. that way. And even this past provincial election, when people ask me, what do I think I went, you know, what do I think went wrong? And there are lots of different things that one can point to, but we were the not Doug Ford party and yeah. we weren't standing on our own two feet and, and articulating what our core values were in a really positive way we're the choice is yours we're not doug ford and that's no way to inspire people and motivate people and, and get people excited about politics yeah i think that's right i i think that's especially problematic when there are two not doug ford parties and you're the smaller one <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of uh you know it's like i'm struggling to find the right analogy but it's an ill-advised <laughs> approach in my view um <laughs> So I think that in should you throw your hat in the ring and be successful uh, in leading the, the Ontario Liberal Party, I think in some ways you're you're free, right? Like you've got you've got the ability to put your own stamp on it and to do things the, the way you want to want them done. Because for all that we've just talked about about collaborative leadership and grassroots politics and all that stuff is really really important. At the end of the day. Politics is still all about leadership, arguably more so than it ever has been because of the media environment, right? And the social media environment in particular. So, you know, the world's your oyster from a, a policy perspective. And who knows, you may develop a few ideas to catch fire and you'd be successful. But that's like, I know, like all good advice in my view, it's like, it's simple. It's you, I'm sure you've heard me say this so many times in various fora that it's going to make you physically ill to hear me say it again. But <laughs> Others can hear it, though. That's fine. 
<laughs> main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I have heard you, that once or twice, Jerry. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> if you can figure out what you think that main thing is and stick to it, uh, iterate it, take advice about it, but stick to it, then you're going to be successful. Yeah, and and it's interesting because in I've traveled a considerable amount across the province. I started in northern Ontario and then went to southwestern Ontario thinking... No substitute you know, I, for that, by the way. Yeah, I, I honestly felt that, you know, people will say I'm not liberal enough or not a team player enough. Although then when Mike Schreiner was, in, you know, toying with the idea, Catherine McKenna and I were texting back and forth and I joked, I guess I'm liberal enough now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and and the other knock is I'm, I'm, I'm too progressive, which, which I, I want to get to. But, but the other thing was, I'm Toronto. This has been a GTA centric party. And look, like my dad's from Windsor and family in Sarnia. My wife's Lambton County farms in the family. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's uh he's from Windsor. My mom's from outside of Hamilton. My my grandfather was on Mantuan Island. My my wife's family is the most interesting though. They are Lambton County oh, yeah. since 1834. And my father-in-law is still on the, the family farm there. And my general view of France is being clear grip country. Yeah. And, and look, I, my experience has been the approach to politics of telling it like it is a sense of honesty and decency in politics. So a willingness to speak one's mind that goes a very long way that integrity matters more than geography and how you act matters more than where you're from. But having said that, if I didn't get a positive response in Northern Ontario and Southwestern Ontario, I would have folded up shop and said, this is for someone else. This isn't for me. The fact I'm talking to you right now suggests it's, it's been, it's been going well so far. Uh, but I, I, I was, I was, it's interesting when you talk about sort of finding the issues, I thought that drug policy advocacy was going to be a bit of a liability for me heading into this because it's been weaponized by conservatives. I can see it being weaponized against me, especially in, uh, in certain communities. And and yet mental health and addictions comes up everywhere. I just spoke to the mayor of Timmins. That's the issue that impacts Timmins the most uh, is, is the opioid crisis. The mayor of Sault Ste. Marie, same conversation. They had a conversation with the former executive director of the London Economic Development Corporation. They would talk about economic development in southwestern Ontario. He talked about the addictions crisis and mental oh, yeah. health. It's, it's, just, it's just everywhere. And, and, and now I can actually you know, take an issue that I've, I've had great success with in terms of making change change to the to actual criminal code and, and CDSA laws and say, okay, well, if we're going to treat this as a health issue, then let's treat it as a health issue and, and deliver at, at the provincial level. So there are, I can see that advocacy. I can see advocacy around protecting kids online. I can see advocacy around social safety net reform. I can see advocacy around climate action, all things that I've cared passionately about at the federal level that translate very nicely to the provincial level. And then there are other issues that come up. And if one isn't talking about them, addressing them and creating a serious plan to 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 fix them, access to primary care, housing affordability, that there are issues that impact people in every community. And if we're not delivering on those, talking about those and finding ways to fix those, then we're, we shouldn't be in politics. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my, my my two cents for what it's worth on the issue profile in Ontario is always remember that Ontario is a place where most people came to it uh, for economic opportunity, right, or of one form or another. So an economic agenda that speaks to people's desire to improve their own lives and the lives of their kids and community that to me is the core that everything needs to be built around in most most places in politics, but especially in Ontario where the economy is king. I think that um, 
we were successful largely in the McGinty years because we articulated a different economic agenda than the one that uh, the Harris government was prosecuting. And there were lots of times, and this is, this goes to your point about perseverance. I literally traveled around Ontario in a green minivan with Dalton McGinty for like two years before the 2003 election. Me and God love him, Arnold Chan, God rest his soul, uh, gone way too, way too young. Um, And I don't know how many times we'd speak to the local chamber of commerce and Dalton, we'd give something that was billed as an economic agenda speech. And Dalton would spend 80% of his time talking about education. And the local head of the chamber of commerce would come up to me afterward and say, well, when's he going to give his economic speech? (laughs) (laughs) But what Dalton understood better than uh, most of those people was that in Ontario, education has always been the ticket to economic prosperity and that the Harris government had severed the connection between those two for its own short term political purposes in the public's mind so that tax cuts create jobs became an economic agenda, which is kind of insane in retrospect. Uh, whereas most people came to Ontario because it's where they went to school. They wanted their kids to go to school there. Um, they knew that the kids were going to be better off because their public school was really good. Like in Dalton weaved a whole narrative around that bedrock principle that he knew 65, 70% of the people in the country, in the province agreed with. But your own take on that, bringing it back to that core principle that Ontario is a place where the economy really, really matters. And most people are there for opportunity reasons. Um, You know, I'm one of them. I grew up in a coal mining town and I'm here and I've spent most of my adult life in either Toronto or Ottawa. So I think it's that's a really important place to start. Agreed. And and especially since there is a conversation in the party around moving back to the center and, and people don't define that exactly but uh, i think i will surprise people in the course of this because i'm known in caucus uh, particularly because of drug policy or animal rights or climate action as more of a progressive kevin lammer actually thought i was a bc member of parliament for the first four, <laughs> four, four years he literally invited me to like a bc caucus event in 2018 or 2019 it's like kevin i'm from toronto he's like what? <laughs> yeah. I just BC, assumed, Nate. I just assumed. <laughs> there are other BC stereotypes that spring to mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I'm not, exactly. I won't. I won't ask what you and Kevin were doing at the time. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I joke that I, uh, I, I was a criminal. I was elected. I changed the laws, and I'm no longer a criminal. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's all to say. I think I will surprise people because. Why am I a liberal? I mean, that conversation around moving back to the center, am I going to shy away from poverty reduction and social determinants of health? No. Am I going to shy away from climate action? No. Am I going to shy away from treating drug use as a health issue and saving lives in the opioid crisis? No. But do we need a strong economic agenda and fiscal discipline? Yes. That's, that's, one can move back to the center. One, one, one shouldn't have have left the center if if that's what the center is. And and I think it is. And so I I think there will be an opportunity to redefine that conversation, seriousness, competence, a strong economic agenda and tying, uh, I think it's exactly right, as you put it, tying education to the economy. Too often I'm in conversations now with people around the education system. And there's a real frustration that we aren't focused on excellence in education. How do we make sure that our kids are 
ready to succeed in life out of the education system. And we've gotten away from that being a primary purpose of the education system at times. They're, we're allowing culture wars at times to infect our education debate instead of really focusing on what matters for our kids and success for them to succeed in, in, in the economy. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, our, I think our education platform in 2003 was literally called Excellence for All. Um, and it was based on it was based on really important measurable improvements in class sizes, test scores, graduation rates. I can recite these. I've said them so many times in my life. I haven't <laughs> said them in 15 years and I can still uh, say them. And we one of the things that I think the main thing that got um, Dalton reelected in 2007 was he could say, you elected me to do this and I did it. And the Tory, John Tory was calling him a liar for raising taxes when he said he wouldn't. But that's not why people elected him. <laughs> so that's the other thing. It's it's if you do get to a point where you've articulated this agenda and people give your party a mandate to implement it, being able to have the confidence that that's why people elected you and therefore you can go back to them and say, I did what I said what I was, what I was going to do. It's a really important wellspring of energy and positive momentum in government. You mentioned the challenge of being the not Doug Ford party when there are two not Doug Ford parties. You were there in 2003 and played a central role in that 2003 election, which which really was fought in a similar fashion. There's a conservative party that needs to be displaced that is causing damage to our province. And yet to displace them, there needs to be one party that becomes the obvious option to be the government in waiting and 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 to ultimately, from a more progressive standpoint and, and from a change perspective, to say, okay, the Liberal Party is going to be the vehicle for change. In 2015, the promise of infrastructure spending to run modest deficits allowed us to really oust the NDP and Mulcair as the vehicle for change. So you've been part of two election cycles where you were able to successfully pull this off um, with with provincial and, and federal liberal parties. We will face a similar conversation here where there's a new leader. Very few people know who she is. Very few people know who any of the leaders are other than Doug Ford. So there's an opportunity. The loneliest job in Canadian politics is being an opposition leader in Ontario. Yeah, yeah no kidding. And, and and there is a, I mean, one of the answers has to be a strong economic agenda and fiscal discipline. We, I always think we, I said the other day in an interview, I'm not, I'm not in the business of attacking the NDP. I never attack the NDP locally, and I don't intend to. You render them irrelevant by saying, yeah, we have some shared priorities, and we're the serious, credible party to deliver on these priorities. And and we obviously, you just show the plan. Like we, we, we always have a more serious, credible plan. But uh, there are, there are going to be times where we need to clearly differentiate ourselves from the NDP. And we were able to carve out in 2003 a space where we became the vehicle for change, 2015 vehicle for change. Do you have an insight in how one might go about doing the same thing in, in the next Yeah, I years? think in both cases, it's the same answer. Think really hard about what you want to do and then focus on in. And, and I think in some ways this was a mistake made by the last Ontario liberal, liberal campaign that they kind of thought a similar dynamic to 2015 was going to play out where people had already like the leap of faith that we took in the prep to 2015 was a strong conviction that Harper was going to lose. Right. 
and that Canadians wanted to replace him. And the contest was going to be who's the better replacement. Yeah. And that was our version of the simple strategy for 2015. So, But that was a change election, unlike this past provincial. Exactly. And that's yeah. why I think that the idea of a quote-unquote progressive primary was not a ripe one in Ontario. And obviously, the Conservative Party in Ontario, provincially, it's the natural governing party, as much as I hate that uh, that phrase when it's applied to the federal Liberal Party. Um, I'm, I'm going to edit that out, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the... I think it's really order of operations is really important, I guess, to get back to your question, figure out what it is that you really want to do. And then when it comes time to give voters a choice, really focus on the points of differentiation between your agenda and the NDP's agenda and argue that that is a more um, desirable option. Right. So in 2003, the we had developed this very robust, uh, very robust environment. A uh, platform which included things that are real. The clock is ticking on one of them, but things that are very real today. There's no coal-fired electricity generation in Ontario. There is, for now, a green belt around the Greater Toronto area. Half of the boreal forest is protected. You know, and I could go on. Um, there is no methyl ethyl chloride in the drinking water for the people of Sarnia. We had all kinds of things in our environmental plan, largely due to someone who I think is a constituent of yours or maybe just West, Dave Harvey, who is an unsung genius of Canadian liberal history, sort of created the environment agenda for uh, uh, 20 years. Anyway, long story short, as it turned out, Howard Hampton's NDP was an uneasy coalition of downtown progressives and Northern unionists, and they couldn't therefore uh, develop a robust environment plan. They couldn't even agree that our coal retirement plan was right, at least over the time frame we projected it in. Um, and then we just relentlessly drove that difference, right? And then the same thing happened federally around a bunch of stuff, including uh, including the ones you mentioned, the deficit infrastructure spending. But the biggest differentiator, frankly, was the approach to uh, the child benefit. So the NDP was proposing a kind of back of the back of the napkin child care plan that really wasn't going to fly and especially wasn't going to fly in Quebec. Uh, and we had a very different approach to supporting um, with a progressive well, you know, the Canada Child Benefit, I'm sure you've yeah. um, talked about it even more often than I, I have. I mentioned it once or twice. <laughs> but that was the most popular thing we promised, right? Along with uh, the willingness to raise taxes on wealthy uh, Canadians so we could cut them for middle class, right? Like that hardcore middle class economic agenda is what yeah. delivered a majority government to the Liberal Party in 2015. And I remember with Dan... Arnold, we did this very long survey after, right after the election so that it was fresh in people's minds. We probably presented it to caucus at some point. Why, in fact, did people vote for us? And the top five things were, actually, it was more popular at that point, it's probably even more so now, to raise taxes on wealthy people than it was to cut them for the middle class. But that was number two. And then the Canada Child Benefit was number three. The Canada Pension Plan reforms were number four, and the deficit for infrastructure, I think, was number five, if I remember correctly. So you put those five things together, and you've got a way of talking about the economy. 
And the NDP didn't have that because they weren't willing to take those policy risks. And the, and there's a seriousness that I think differentiates. And, and and I'll I'll use both climate and the Canshaw benefit as an example. The Canshaw benefit, I first learned of it, or I, I at least really got into the weeds of being able to advocate and articulate that policy when I read a uh, substantive package from Sherry Torgman and Ken Battle at then Caledon Institute. Now, obviously, the transition to Matry, but we smartly, and I, whether it was Mike McNair or whoever it was that did this, I don't know, but plucked it out of that proposal and, and turned it into a Oh, yeah. Political... Well, Sherry and Ken are, are long uh, co travelers, right? Like Alan. Yeah, Parker. they're amazing. Yeah. Sherry yeah. just joined me for a town hall in the, in the fall. She's, she's great. And, and it was her work actually on what was then the working income tax benefit that really That's motivated it. a policy resolution that I pitched in 2016 to expand the Canada workers benefit. Very well. And then that's another area where I remember Sean Fraser came up to me after we expanded and he goes, you did it. And and it's like, I was like, I, I not me. It's like, I'm one person. It, it was more, many other people that did it, but from a caucus perspective that we, we helped to draft that. And then that was part of the conversation and that's part of the coalition building. And then part of, everyone's voice kind of plays a role, but, but there's a seriousness to that. Yeah. And being open ideas and there, there's no way to um, there's no better way to hone your own seriousness than to spend your time around serious people. Yeah, right? Exactly. Alan Broadbent, who is uh, the philanthropist who created the Maytree Foundation and uh, sponsored people like Ratna Omnivar and yep. Sherry Georgian and Ken Battle and Michael Mendelssohn and all, all these people over the years who contributed just in nor no, nobody knows who these people are. Right. Um, but if you spend an hour with Sherry Torchman talking about uh, income supplements, it's going to elevate your game. <laughs> so, yeah, ex Oh, exactly. Exactly. That's a Sherry, uh, Miles Korak, Jennifer Robson have all agreed Korak, to help me out in the course of this yeah. uh, this potential leadership run. Akwazi yeah. Wusubempa at UOT's uh, agreed to be publicly involved and help us out. So that that's what excites me about this is there's a certain mediocrity to democracy at times when you see it up close. And so making sure that we are bringing serious really people in. Don't say. <laughs> <laughs> I said it, not you. So it's, you know, you don't have to comment on your, you know, the last <laughs> number of decades of your own experience, but, uh, uh, but yeah, but so, but to, to get back to that level of seriousness and that what differentiates us, you mentioned back of the napkin, that language, it's language that I sometimes use when it comes to NDP planning as well, because the Canada Child Benefit was a serious policy. It not only smart politics, it substantive, impactful, transformative policy for people's lives. And the NDP had nothing to, to stack up to that. When it came to the 2019 election around climate action, as an example, the NDP had a more ambitious plan in terms of their target. I Look, I, I preferred their ambitious target, if I'm being honest. But there was no question in my mind, and I think no question in the minds of other people who were looking at it with greater experience in climate policy than me, that we had the serious, credible plan. And, and it might not meet everyone's expectations at the doorstep in terms of, you know, I think 50% of Canadians want even more action on, 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 on climate. That's good. More, more is necessary. But maintaining that level of seriousness is essential when I think about combating opponents, whether it's the Green Party or the NDP. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, the combination of seriousness and positivity is yeah. where 
the magic happens, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Too often, and I've certainly been guilty of this enough myself in the past, those of us who are kind of closet wonks at heart, you can wonk out on the details of stuff. I remember Greg Sorbero once said to me many moons ago, you know, they don't um, send in the automotive engineers to sell the car. And there's a reason. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think that's really wise advice. You got to know how the car works and why someone should want it, but you don't want to sell them on one uh, minute, difficult to understand aspect of it over another. And that's right. The the perfect politician, in my view, is okay. So I'll I'll tell two very short stories. So when I, in that 2015 campaign, Stefan Dion came to the riding. And we did a campaign event at my old high school, Melbourne. And he came in and he was speaking to a class in the library and he was speaking in English. And I was listening to him and thinking in my head, I'm new to this, but I'm going to have to translate to these kids what this man is saying to them because none of them are understanding what he is saying right now. And that's on the one hand, policy wonk through and through. And that's you. I think that's essential. You need that level of academic expertise. It's more than essential. It's adorable. Uh, on the flip side, my brother, who is not political in, in, in any real way, uh, he wonders why I do this. Uh, he called Rob Ford, when not Doug Ford, but Rob Ford, who was a more likable guy. Rob Ford, when he was mayor, my brother forgot why he was calling him. And when Rob Ford called him back, they talked about the Leafs for 15 minutes. My brother would have voted for that guy forever. And if you can combine those two characteristics in your politics, you will be forever successful. Yeah, I agree. That's a good note to end on uh, (laughs) because we're going to lose our audience here. Well, okay. So I'll, 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 I'll ask you just one other question and then, and then we'll go, which is around, cause I I listened to you on the bridge talking about caucus management and leadership with, uh, with Peter Mansbridge and with with James Moore. And I think Peter, Peter requires those of us who are regular contributors to the bridge to say Canada's top rated podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I know we're way down the list. Um, I, I, I listened to that intently. I found it very interesting. And especially as someone who is interested in taking on a more serious leadership role, uh, I I found it interesting, the the dynamics of caucus management from a different perspective. I have gotten the question, how do you go from maverick? I think it's overstating the case, but how do you go from maverick to, to leader? I think different roles demand a different approach. And I'm, it's not to say that I would take the same identical approach if I were in a leadership yeah. role from being a, a backbencher where an accountability function is more required. Having said that, do you see when you've 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 seen me in politics over the last seven years and you've seen me in some cases probably grow into the role in, in a more serious way uh, when uh, you see this in front of us as a challenge? And I, I think we do meet the requirements of generation renewal at least but uh, do you think we are able to go from you know so-called maverick totally. to leader totally i mean i i i uh, look you should run i my day days in active politics are over um but you should run because you're exactly the kind of person who should be in positions like the one you're seeking and you're in it for all the right reasons and you should go for it man and i think you're more than capable of making the step as long as and i don't think you will do you don't lose the core of who you are you know part of the reason that you um felt that you had to dissent from some of the uh 
caucus decisions that came up over the years was because you felt like you couldn't authentically go out and say something you didn't believe in. And as long as you say, as long as you see that and recognize it in other people who are potential members of your caucus, then you're not going to have a problem. In, In my view, like you're dealing with a hundred problems a week, maybe a day in politics, and you try to minimize the number of ones you create for yourself. (laughs) <laughs> and, and in my view, like caucus and cabinet management, nine times out of 10, they're avoidable problems that are yeah. either ignored or let fester or um, people forget that, you know, by na- by definition, everybody's in the same room because they share more in common than uh, they have that, diff- that, that they disagree on. And if you can focus on the things that you're there to do and that you campaigned hard to get done then you're gonna have a few problems yeah i think that's right and then and based on my own bias and experience at the same time as one creates space everyone's there to serve a purpose and they have their own reasons for being there and the more that you can proactively find those reasons and empower people to deliver on the things they want to deliver on you'll have a very positive caucus dynamic totally totally yeah i thought i and i think i said this on peter's podcast i thought Dalton was an absolute master in the way that uh, he managed caucus. I remember after the first budget, the first caucus meeting where we raised taxes because Dalton felt he had to, to uh, implement our agenda, despite the fact that we said we wouldn't during the campaign. That was a tough caucus meeting. And, <laughs> yeah, um, I bet. But you know what the toughest part of it was, was walking into it. Uh, because the more people spoke, the more we realized that he'd made the right decision. Interesting. And there were lots of people who were, um, you know, they were worried about what their constituents were going to say, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, he really knew those people, right? And um, there's no substitute for spending time with the people that you want to go into battle with you. Yeah, it's uh, that's a good place to close. Just the idea that relationships are essential and Absolutely. I will only be success. I've only been successful. I, I had a holiday party uh, at the end of the tail end of last year. And there are people there who have been with me since the nomination that re- relationships and team is essential. And you've got to make sure though, in the course of building that team, it's not, we're a team. So you do everything I say that you do. It's we're a team. So everyone's experiences and voices are going to be reflected and, and, and seen in different ways. Um, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the the insights. And I'm glad we were able to cover both federal and, and provincial. I, I hope to read more about you on the front page of the globe. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, let, let's, yeah. Uh, let's stay in touch. I try to keep those to a minimum these days. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I appreciate Jerry's time just as I appreciate his insight. Few people in this country have seen or done as much to shape our politics. And there's a whole conversation we could have had, should have had, had we had more time, specifically around serious climate action and environmental protection. As always, please leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. Do reach out if you have any suggestions for future guests or topics. We've got Jen Keysmat and David Miller coming up next. And otherwise, until next time.